Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is God's word. Greetings, first of all. Greetings in Jesus' name. Very happy to worship the living God with you this morning. Through his son, Jesus. Yesterday, in this place, there was a memorial service for Amanda. And as a part of that service, there was a live stream from the Czech Republic where she had done some mission work. And one of the three missionaries, whom First Avan supports, who eulogized her, um, was actually a Slovak. And the Czechoslovakia used to be one country. Some of you will know there was a, a so-called Velvet Revolution after Eastern European communism collapsed and Slovakia seceded from Czechoslovakia, leaving the original regions of Bohemia and Moravia. But you can't call it Czechoslovakia anymore because Slovakia is a different nation. So now it's the Czech Republic and Slovakia. If you get on a boat in Budapest and go west on the Danube River, as Viking river cruise people do and as other people, other tourists do, before you get to Vienna, you come to the Slovak capital of Bratislava, a lesser-known city, but an important city. And one of the girl, one of the, one of the missionaries who live-streamed to First Savannah yesterday. Um, Gabriella, we call her Gabi. She invited me to speak to a group of university students there about seven or eight years ago. And um, after I was done teaching, we, we identified at least one unbeliever in the group. And as I, as I began to press gospel claims on this young woman, she said, I could never become a Christian. I said, tell me why. She said, because of what Jesus said to that Syrophoenician woman. He insulted her. Now, the verse that that student was referring to, which Dawn read a moment ago, was Matthew 15, verse 26 when Jesus said, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
And this young, this young woman said, uh, he called her a dog. He actually didn't, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I wish I could say that I gave her a brilliant rejoinder and letter to Jesus. I, I actually think I fumbled it a bit. I gave her a response. I think it was pretty lame, actually. I think I failed in my 1 Peter 3.15 responsibility, which every Christian has. You know, that's the verse that says that we're to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us an explanation, a defense for the hope we cherish within us. Well, I didn't do a very good job of that. But I'll tell you one thing. She riveted my attention on that passage of Scripture like no preacher ever did, like no seminary professor ever did. She made me study that passage. Now, this is a missionary text. Jesus was on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he travels to the coastline of Phoenicia. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. Mark, I actually said Luke in the first service, and I was mistaken. Mark calls her a Syrophoenician woman. She's a Gentile. She's a foreigner. Many commentators would say that the Lord was getting away from it all, and there's a possible implication of that in the text, that he was taking a holiday, that that's why he didn't want to bother with her. I'm not so sure about that. I don't, I don't, if we want to take a rest, we don't usually walk 60 miles. Uh, I, th- I think he went there as a missionary. I think he went there because she was there. I think the reason that she was looking for him is because he was looking for her. I think the reason she found him, how on earth could she find him? Was because he was determined to find her. So when we come to verse 21, we're told that he he went away to this district, that a Canaanite woman came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, let's just consider those three things. First of all, she believed that she needed mercy from him. She recognized his messianic office by calling him the son of David. She recognized the majesty of David, someone who conquered her neighborhood in a previous generation. By the way, I, I don't know if you ever look at Twitter. I mean, I've never been tempted to write anything on Twitter, but I do read it. Uh, Twitter's a shark tank. I mean, people, you know, on Facebook, people show photos of uh, the little images that the top of their lattes make in the cup. You don't do that stuff on, on Twitter. You fight with people, and you insult them, and you attack them. And I thought, no, no thanks. I've got enough of that in real life. And, uh, but I do, I actually, I'm telling you all this is, I actually follow a Syrophoenician woman on Twitter. She hates America. She hates Israel. She loves Vladimir Putin, who's a thug. And she says she's a Christian. You say, why do you follow her? 
because I want to understand people like this Slovak girl who said she could never become a Christian. And let me tell you something. It was a big, big deal for someone from that neighborhood to bow to the Messiah of Israel. And that's what this woman did. Her appeal was perfect in terms of her recognition of the majesty and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she says to him, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Not just oppressed by a demon, but severely oppressed by a demon. Now, I don't want to get too graphic in speculating on what that probably meant. But it probably included one of the following. The most vile words in the language. Nonstop. 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 The most outrageous sexual exhibitionism or sexual aggression. Violence. Violence which endangered not only anybody in the neighborhood, but her own family and probably her mom. And you can understand how desperate this woman must have been. By the way, has anybody seen a text from Ann Graham Lotz in the last 24 hours? Raise your hand if you had. I hardly see anything. I'm going to have to wear sunglasses up here like uh, Joe Bonamassa. What's his name? The guitar player. He always wears sunglasses. I only see one person. Two, two three, four. Okay. We may as well have an altar call now. Um, <laughs> well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what the text said. My boy may be dying. Her son, Jonathan, boy, he must be at least 6'5", is in the hospital with COVID. And he's in critical condition. And it's a desperate situation. And, and Ann Graham lies is saying, please pray for my child. Pray for my son. And so what can be more sincere? What can be more desperate than a mother's prayer for, for one of her children? And that's what the Lord was presented with on this day in, in, in Matthew 15. And it says, in the brutal honesty of Holy Scripture, in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Now, I, I would call unanswered prayer a challenge to faith. I would call the silence of heaven in response to a plea for a child, a challenge to faith. And if unanswered prayer, especially unanswered prayer for a child, the silence of heaven is not a challenge to faith, what about this? What about this one? And his disciples came and begged him. Now, isn't that interesting? The Syrophoenician woman came and begged him. And then his disciples came and begged him. Oh, what, do you, what do you beg God for? Do you beg for revival? Do you, do you beg for power and witnessing? Do you beg for boldness? That's what Paul begged for. 
Um, do you beg for success when you witness to the lost? That's what Paul begged for. This lost, well, maybe she wasn't lost. This foreign pagan woman presented herself to, uh, into their midst and the disciples, this select group of future missionaries whom the Lord separated from the ordinary lot of, of, of Galileans, uh, they begged, get her out of here. She's ruining our holiday. Lord, make her go away. The great Matthew Henry says that they were asking the Lord to heal the daughter so, so she'd go. I don't see any of that. I mean, Matthew Henry was a giant. I don't see any of that in the text. They just wanted her to go away. And they wanted Jesus to throw her out of the apostolic company. And what a company it was. Really great commission stuff all the way. He answered. He finally speaks. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, unanswered prayer is a challenge to faith. Unanswered prayer for a child is a challenge to faith. You know what? Theology is a challenge to faith. Last week, somebody asked me to preach on the Canaanite slaughter. I thought, wow, thank, how can I ever thank you enough? You know, <laughs> I, I tried to get out of it, and I, he wouldn't let me. So I preached on it. Some people stumble over the doctrine of hell. Some people stumble over the doctrine of election. Under this roof, um, a godly mother persuaded, persuaded her daughter to come see me. She was about to make a bad marriage. She was a graduate of a cherished Christian school. And uh, she wasn't a Christian. And you know why she said she wasn't a Christian? Because of the doctrine of election. And she said, maybe I'm just not predestined. That's what she said. Then she went out and made a bad marriage. Then she got a divorce. Then she got into another bad marriage. And so the Lord offers her a very hard bit of theology to choke down. The priority of Israel. You're not of Israel. I was sent to the lost house of Israel, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile, Romans 1, 16. And the scripture says that after he gives her this tough morsel of theology to, to choke down, it says that, that she came toward him. She didn't go away from him because of the hard theology. She came, she came toward him. And she knelt down. You know what the King James Version says in this place? It says, but she worshipped him. But she worshipped him. And she said, Lord, help me. You don't have to go to seminary to learn how to say that. Uh, you don't have to understand the, the nuances and the subtleties of, of election or high matters of theology to say that. Just to say, Lord, help me. Uh, maybe you're troubled by unanswered prayer. 
Maybe you're troubled by high doctrine. Maybe you're troubled by Christians. We've all, if, we, if we've never been troubled by Christians, we haven't been paying attention. And with all that, she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And then the zinger, uh, what that university student in Bratislava called an insult. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, one thing that's a little bit important here is, and we can't nail it, is which language they were speaking in, because she wasn't a Hebrew. And Aramaic was spoken in, in the greater region, and, and probably you can make a better argument that they were, they were speaking in Aramaic. The reason it's important is because the Greek, of course, brings out the meaning. And we can't, we can't insist that Jesus ever spoke in Greek, but we can insist that he knew Greek. And probably this lady knew Greek. We can insist on that because his little brother knew Greek, James. He wrote an epistle in Greek. And his disciple Peter knew Greek, not the greatest of scholars. He wrote two epistles in Greek. And his disciple John, a rude Galilean whom the Sanhedrin called agramatoi kai idiotai, ignorant and unlearned, he knew Greek. He wrote five books of the New Testament in Greek. Now, the reason I mention that here is because there's a Greek word for dog that means a mangy mutt that you don't want anywhere around your yard or your children. And then there's the word for that precious lap dog who's often in the lap of, of the owner, who uh, one of those dogs that gets coddled, you know, one of those dogs that, that crazy ladies leave half of their inheritance to. And that's the, word Jesus, that's the word Jesus used. But he didn't call her a dog. He spoke metaphorically. It is true that the place in the metaphor for the Gentiles is the place of dogs. That is true. Lap dogs. You don't feed the pets before you feed the children, unless you're a little bit nutty. Okay. That's what the Lord was saying to her. But here's, here's the important thing. She didn't feel insulted. She didn't feel the least bit insulted. She felt encouraged. She felt motivated to press her suit with him. And as a matter of fact, she says, yes, Lord. She agrees with him. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. Now, there's something I want us to understand here. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this. It's, it's, it's hugely important. When you look at the exchanges between the Lord Jesus and any questioner, 80% of the time he's being challenged. He's being opposed uh, there are questioners who pretend that they're, they're respecting him, but they're not. They're wanting him to trip. They're trying to trip him up. And the great brains trust of religious and academic 
Israel have conspired to think of a question that nobody can answer without risk and without offense. And so they huddle and they come up with something that seems infallible. There's no way he can answer this without getting into trouble. And they bring it to him and he gets them in trouble. And he does it every time, 100% of the time. Because he's the son of God. And you see these young grandmasters and they're playing chess against the computer and they always lose. But Jesus would always win against the computer because he's the son of God. And he wins every argument except for this one. Except for this one. Now, now, catch the spirit of what I'm saying. Because when I say he loses the argument, I put that in quotes. I say that reverently. He loses the argument for the same reason that the angel lost the wrestling match with Jacob. He loses the argument for the same reason I lose 100% of the wrestling matches with my six-year-old grandson. The reason he lost the argument is because he wanted her to win. There was never one second when he wasn't going to heal that girl. That's why he went to Lebanon to heal the girl. That's why he was there. And by the way, there are so many fools with PhDs who teach that the Gospels were made up. That the Gospel was was made up. Can you imagine putting this in if it didn't happen? That he loses an argument with a Syrophoenician woman? So she comes back and she says, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I, I agree with that. But even the dogs, even the dogs can graze on a few few crumbs from the children's table. Then he says to her, and it's very dramatic. The words are very powerful in the Greek New Testament. They're They're very dramatic in the Greek. She says... In verse 27, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And he says, Hoiganai, Magali, Jesupistus. Hoiganai, Magali, great. Jesupistus, it's your faith. 
Woman, great is your faith. You've won. You convinced me. Spurgeon uh, was rich. And he wasn't rich because he had a great salary, because he didn't take a salary. He was rich because he sold his sermons, and everybody wanted them in about 20 languages. And he lived in successive mansions. One was called Helensburg House, and one was called Westwood. And he was out on his spacious grounds walking one day, and he saw that somehow an old mangy cur dog had somehow penetrated the shrubbery and was romping around on Spurgeon's lawn. And he just hated it. And he picked up the biggest stick that he could throw, and he threw it as hard as he could at that dog. And that dog picked up that stick, ran up to Spurgeon, dropped the stick at his feet, wagging his tail, and just looked up at him expectantly. And Spurgeon said, he conquered me. (laughs) He conquered me. Well, you know what? I say this reverently. I say this in context. I say this in quotes. She conquered him. Hagunai, Megali Hesupistus, woman, great is your faith. So, I, many of you have heard my testimony, and, and uh, this is about the most embarrassing part of it. When I became a Christian, I thought that the evidence was spare. But I thought my faith was great. Isn't that embarrassing? That's one of the most embarrassing things I can think of. I, I thought, you know, not, not a lot of evidence, but I've got a lot of faith. Very, very soon, very, very early in my Christian life, I discovered the truth. My faith is microscopic. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my faith is weak and faint. And the evidence, friend, the evidence is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Now, why did he put her through this so he could say this to her? Now, was this an insult? Was it an insult? Some of you who study commentaries, especially the older biblical literature, will have heard of the divine accolade. If I say the divine accolade, you'll know what the divine accolade is if you paid much attention to what people write about Scripture. The divine accolade are the words, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Rearrange your lives. Give away your property. Sacrifice your time so as to increase your chances of one day hearing the divine accolade. It'll be worth far more than anything you or I could ever give up. I would put this on a par with the divine accolade. Woman, great is your faith. Now, great is comparative. 
I've had people in this church come up to me and say, you know, Ronnie, one day you said this was the greatest. And one day you said that was the greatest. And then the next day, the next week you said the other. There can only be one greatest, Ronnie. And I say, guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. No use fighting that. It was on tape. (laughs) But, you know, greatness is comparative. Now, how, how great is the universe? Well, it's at least 14 billion light years across. At least. At least. How great is the one who made the universe? Well, a lot greater than that. So when the one who fashioned the galaxies said, this is great, well, how great is that? Is that an insult? Oh, please, God, please insult me like that one day. Oh, oh, to live for that insult, to crave that insult, it would be the greatest possible thing. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ saying to you, great is your faith, and calling your name saying, great is your faith. Did he insult her? He honored her. He not only honored her, he exalted her. I was trying to think yesterday, who was the most exalted woman in the New Testament? Well, it had to be Mary. Mary's, Mary's the most exalted woman in history. There's no doubt about that. You don't need to, we don't need to fight with Roman Catholics about that. Grant it. But you know what? Jesus never talked to his mother like this. Uh, The angel talked to Mary like that, but Jesus didn't. And I mean, if I think of exalted women, I think of Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany was the greatest theologian in in the New Testament before the resurrection, before the day of Pentecost, because she's the only one who had a clue that the cross is coming. The disciples had been told it over and over, but Mary anointed him for his burial. We could say she did it inadvertently. She didn't know what she was doing, but at least she did it. She was the only one who did it. Mary Magdalene has to be in that elite group. Mary Magdalene, who was the first missionary who brought the news to the cowering, unbelieving disciples that he's risen. He's not there. I saw him. I talked to him. What an honor. But you know what? Jesus didn't say anything to Mary of Bethany or Mary of Magdalene or Mary of Bethlehem, his own mother, like he said to this woman. Did he insult her? No, he exalted her. Why did he put her through that? Why did he, go, why did he not answer her when she spoke to him? To showcase her prevailing faith? Why did he share that brutal, painful theology with her? I haven't come for your kind. I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel to showcase her prevailing faith. Why did did he give her race, her tribe, the place of dogs in the metaphor? He didn't call her a dog, but that was the Gentile place in the metaphor. No denying that. Why did he do that? To showcase her prevailing faith to show the great faith that fights through the silence of God, even after importunate prayers for a child? To showcase the prevailing faith that deals with the silence of heaven, the suffering of a child, 
the difficulties of theology and the terrible behavior of other Christians. If he had immediately acceded to her request, we would have never known how great her faith was. Did he insult her? No. He honored her. And she's been honored in houses of worship for 2,000 years. And she's being honored today. Go and do likewise. Because she is our model. Amen.